Okay, let me hit this record button. Okay. Um, it should be recording. Yes. Okay. Says it's recording now. Okay, great. Anytime well, you're ready, go for okay. it. So my name is Gail Myers and my journey started, this particular journey started in 1997. I was a grad student uh, working on my PhD at The Ohio State University. And it was the very first week that I was meeting with my advisor and we were introducing ourselves. He was sharing with me his graduate work, his dissertation work, which he did in Japan, and that he was currently working with Amish farmers in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And the topic of black farmers came up. This was in August, late August of 1997. I knew nothing about black farmers. I knew that, that we, I heard like in my mom's side, when I was 12, we went to Alabama. And so there was a farm. I saw this huge sow about the size of my sofa with all these flies. And I thought, that is not for me. Let me get, cause I grew up in Daytona beach. And I thought, let me get back to the beach. So I, I knew that that was there in my family's past but it was so remote from who I, you know how I could relate to myself in the world. So anyway, <clears throat> after the initial question about what's happening with black farmers and late August of 97. I left his office because I, I didn't know anything and I went directly to the library. I did a lit review, a lit search. And at that time it was the beginning of the uh, Pigford versus Glickman litigation. It was a class action suit taken up by several thousand black farmers who were uh, claiming to have been discriminated against over time. And so I became very curious, intrigued. And as I began to interview farmers, my curiosity and my intrigue um, turned to frustration uh, and, and in some ways just out anger because they were telling me about their loss of land, their loss of family, loss of life in some cases. And I couldn't believe it. Actually, the first two interviews that I did, I pretty much cried all the way back from where they Usually they're, rural, they're in the rural areas. I was in Columbus, Ohio. So it was about two to three hours from where I was. I mean, the whole way, just doing like this, like, oh my goodness. Because um, I had never heard those stories, you know? And so I did my, and, and, and another interesting part of this story is that I didn't go to Ohio State to study black farmers. I'm a cultural anthropologist. So I went to the Ohio State University to go to Ecuador to study uh, a group of Afro-Ecuadorians. And um, so I continued to kind of compile that research as I was doing these interviews with black farmers. It was about five months into, towards actually before the end of the first quarter. And I said, I'm not going to Ecuador. I'm gonna be right here in Ohio. So. For the next five years, um, I started interviewing black farmers, learning about their, their loss of land, but more also about their traditional farming practices, you know, their worldviews. And the more I learned, um, the more I was transformed. Let me, let, me, let me start right there, first of all, as I look back, because I had um, so much of an academic, uh, was working at Morehouse School of Medicine, uh, had done some teaching. And so, you know, I was worked at the School of Medicine at Morehouse. So I'm much of a research, so, you know, more hardcore data collecting kind of, you know, 
although that I'm qualitative, but still, you know, how does it fit into this block? And, and when I started interviewing and, and, and walking the fields with black farmers, I had no idea that there were human beings on the planet with that kind of love for each other and the land and their family as a group of people. Wow. And so I wanted to be a part of some of the solutions that I heard problems to. So after five years of, of researching and writing about the black farming practices and uh, some, a few poems, I, um, it was time for graduation and all of my colleagues were, you know, sharing, you know, I'm going to go to this archaeological institute. I'm going to go to this one. And they said, Gail, what are you going to do? I said, well, I don't know, but I got farms to grow. And I meant that. I meant that as the next step of what I saw this work was about. I had gone through a PhD program, uh, the only black in my department, the only woman in most, in many of my classes. And I felt like, how dare I get this cute, nice degree, doctor, doctor, and go out and live my life, having felt like the other in a lot of my classes. So I'm out in the field with these farmers who oftentimes themselves have felt like the other. There was a certain alignment that I felt. There was a certain way in which I refused to exert and exact that same kind of power, difference and privilege. And that wasn't, that, that didn't appeal to me at all. What I wanted to do was to be closer to black farmers and to figure out how it could be um, a support. So uh, graduated, moved back to Atlanta. I got my uh, master's degree at uh, Georgia State University. So I thought, okay, I'll go back to Atlanta. Hey, it's the South. I know there's black farmers there. Get a chance to start talking to them and working and seeing how I can, you know, where I could fit in. And when I went back to Atlanta, I started talking to people about sustainable agriculture. This was in 2002. Very few people understood the term at that point. It was about 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. And so that was what I was sort of pinning my work on. That's how I understood the practices of black farmers. And so I did a, you know, a couple of teach. I was, went back to the School of Medicine and eventually I got a, a, an assignment to go to San Francisco. A colleague of mine was working out there and she said, I need your help. I'm pretty good with numbers as well. Um, and she says, I got this short-term gig and I'd love for you to come out and co-manage this project for me. It was the end of the semester at Morehouse. You know, the students had written all their papers and I said, eh, let me come on out. What, what can it hurt, right? So I go to San Francisco and I start asking people about sustainable agriculture. If you're from the West Coast, you probably know what the answers were. As opposed to in Atlanta asking about sustainable agriculture, who's doing that work? The most common answer was, what is that anyway? Mm -hmm. I go to San Francisco and I ask about sustainable agriculture. They go, oh yeah, well, you need to talk to this person, that person, this person. Moreover, there was a conference around the same time, a sustainable ag conference. I thought, oh my God, this is wonderful. So um, after the assignment ended, it felt like San Francisco was a place to be. Yeah. So I moved to San Francisco uh, towards the earlier part of 2004 and started talking to black farmers in, in, the, in California. And lo and behold, they had the same issues and challenges that the black farmers were having in Ohio and Alabama and Georgia. 
And so um, I started main, one of the farmers that I met when I was in Ohio, Gordon Reed and I became very good friends. We co-wrote, we wrote a grant. Um, We were on the same page about let's do something. Mm. And I remember calling Gordon one day and, and sharing with him the frustration after I talked to one of the black farmers that they were dealing with the same thing. And I was quite surprised. I thought, you know, California, as progressive as it is, you know, I thought back black farmers would have everything they needed. Oh, right. this is, this is going to be, you know, rap. I, um, but it wasn't. Um, and so I started farms. We started Farms to Grow, Gordon Reed and I. And again, out of the frustration of, the, 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 the toil and, the, and almost the horrors mm. of their stories of land loss, of intimidation, of white neighbors, when the families would go to church, they would try to come and burn the house down. Several farmers lost homes through fire only to rebuild. Uh, their lakes, their, their ponds were poisoned so that their animals died. I mean, things that you, the, any, the most horrendous acts that you can think of, Black farmers had to deal with. And so I just felt like I, I wanted to do something. So that was September 2004. And so I start, we started Farms to Grow. Um, and I guess the rest is history. Um, <laughs> Farms to Grow has been the platform that we have organized farmers. Uh, we, we've been advocates, we've been activists. We have been marketing and distribution. We have a Freedom Farmers Market that's going into the eighth year. We had a youth, uh, a young chefs program. We worked with lots of youth, teaching them the joy of cooking. Mm. Uh, but they cooked food that they grew in the garden. So we had a garden program first, and we turned that into a young chefs. We taught a program. We taught uh, for five years. Uh, third grade class at Charles Drew Elementary in San Francisco every Thursday. And it, it, there were some remarkable transformations that we saw from the students. The principal would tell us about how the discipline problems were minimized, how the, you know, the students were reading better. Yeah. And um, so we knew that was good work. And so, you know, the work now is about, you know, continuing to connect with a lot of groups. When we started in 2004, there were about a handful of black organizations that were working at the national level like we do. We work all over the country. Uh, And thank goodness today, in 2021, there are a whole bunch. Oh yeah. uh, And that is exactly what has needed, that that we we all have built on each other's work. We're all Mm. standing on the shoulders of the work that went on before us. And I will say today, there's a lot more resources. There's a lot more hope. There's a lot more folks organizing. Uh, There has been a real uh, forward shift, forward movement to more resources, more tangible resources, more substantive resources to black farmers that have made a big difference. Um, And we're looking at, again, continuing to uh, figure out how we can support other groups and other farmers in creating more generational wealth. So this journey of seeing this film, Rhythms of the Land, actually started in 1997. When I interviewed Mr. William Chambers at that time, he was, uh, I want to, 89 or 90. And um, he he was farming actually up until he was in his late 90s. And we were in his barn and his 
grandson, I was gonna say his great grandson, but his, his, one of his grandsons was in the barn and we're talking about the chickens. And he said, and I think little uh, Will was about seven or eight. And he was like, now that's a, that, that chicken is small, but that chicken is mature. I was fast. I was like, he's talking about the chicken is mature. I was like, the world needs to see this yeah. young boy on this farm with all this knowledge. So I saw that film. I didn't necessarily see the name then, but I saw that the world, I felt like the world needed to know Mr. Chambers and other black farmers. Absolutely. So that was sort of in my, sort of in my library of things to do. Fast forward many years later, after I graduated and moved to California, as I said, uh, I also continued to maintain a contact with other farmers that I met. And um, I would get a call, you know, one month that so-and-so farmer had passed away. You know, a couple of months later, so-and-so farmer would pass away. These are the elder farmers. And so I started writing grants to get funding for the documentary. Started searching all kinds of places and I applied, didn't get anything. And the last call, I, you know, I don't remember who it was, but the last call I says, mm -mm, I got to get going. So I saved some money. Um, I took six weeks off, flew into Atlanta. I had some folks that I had, I guess I had scheduled about seven or eight interviews throughout maybe four or five states. Through the course of that summer tour, I interviewed almost 30 farmers in 10 states. I expected to stay in hotels most of the night, most of those times. I stayed in a hotel twice. Um, I was expecting to you know, be on the road a lot by myself. I had two folks that said, no, we're gonna drive with you. Talk about spirit. Tiffany, I was driving. This is a story that I, I, I should have written about when I came out of the field, but it was so overwhelming. So I'm driving. And I, I, you know, it, I hear these voices or these sounds in the back seat, and and I mean, so seriously that I turned around. But there were, it sounded like there were ancestors that were saying, "You got your elbow in my neck, move over. Why is your leg on my feet? You got, you know." It felt like I was riding with a car full of ancestors. Literally, I heard them. I think it was in wow. Mississippi, um, and boy, it was a hot summer. I, I, you know, I had to turn in. It took two rental cars because one, the AC went out and a, even a tele, my phone burned out. It was so, I was like 111 in Mississippi. Good Lord. I'm driving in Mississippi and I see what looks like someone standing on the road. And I thought, it's hot out here. Why are they standing on the road? But what it did is it made me slow down. As I was slowing down, there was a highway patrolman right to my right who I did not see. Would have probably got a fit, fat ticket. Mm. Um, but the, the appearance of that mirage made me slow down. I had so many talk about spiritual experiences. This whole, that whole tour was nothing but spirit. People fed me, they would give me food, a bushel of corn, I would take to the next farmer. Uh, they would give me garlic, I would take to the next farmer. Uh, tomatoes, I would take to the next farm that I visited. You know, so I, I shared food, I shared uh, experiences, and it, it was just incredible. It was a summer of love. Mm. I met so many loving folks uh, in North Carolina, Texas, 
Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, North and South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. It was the most remarkable. It changed me. Um, so I came back out of the field and I totally expected to have this film done by 2013. <laughs> As a fact, when you see, cause I, I went and I did a little iMovie trailer, edited it myself. I was radio TV when I was in the Air Force. So I know how to, <laughs> sure, I know I I editing and the DJ stuff. So I was like, oh, I can knock this out. I yeah. And it says 2013. Um, well, that didn't happen, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, but what did happen that year and I'm, I'm really proud to say the choice I, that I made was a good one. Uh, we had a community of, of, of uh, residents, a restaurant owner in West Oakland that wanted to start a black farmer's market. They knew that Farms to Grow worked with black farmers. So they came to us and they said, uh, can you help us start a farmer's market? So we did a survey in this community, made sure that they, were gonna be yeah. interested in it, that they would spend the money. We went down to Fresno, which is where the American, uh, the African-American Farmers of California Association is. So we could talk to the farmers. They said, that sounds like a good idea. Mm. They came to Oakland and it was on the parking lot of a, of a Brothers Kitchen, which is a soul food restaurant owned by a guy called Ken Shandy. And so I, there was a choice, freedom or rhythms. Mm. Um, it was freedom because that market was so important. So we started the farmer's market and um, it was, it was going, go, it's going really well. Um, there were, so after the farmer's market started, I think maybe 20, 2015 or 16, I started another fundraiser. I was like, okay, we got the market up. Maybe I can fundraise for the film. We made a little bit of money, uh, enough that I could actually pay a real editor yeah. to edit the trailer. Gotcha. So we had a new trailer up there um, and effort to raise money. Um, but then there was always the work of Farms to Grow. So COVID hit 2020. <clears throat> a lot of stuff slowed down. You know, certainly um, after the death of George Floyd, a lot of eyes were open. A lot of folks started saying, what can I do? This is yeah. really yeah. not right. So we had folks reach out to us to see how they could support us as did uh, a lot of our black organizations get resources. So I had this one woman, she called me. Oh, she sent me a text message at first. She said, this film must go, this film, no, she called me and left a voicemail message. She said, this film needs to happen. How much do you need for it? And uh -huh. I thought, ooh, what a nice Okay, question. that's a question. <laughs> That's a real question. We finally talked face to, you know, on the phone and I, and I gave her an amount and she says, well, I can't give you that, but um, I do want to, you know, give something that we can use as uh, maybe leverage for fundraising. So she donated 40,000 for our mm -hmm. first um, match. Okay. So as a result of that, we had something tangible. We uh, organized a post-production um, Elaine Smith, who's our executive director at Farms to Grow with her brilliant self, helped us organize the post-production team. So we got a post-production team of about 15 people. Okay. And so now we've raised some money. We've got an editor group out of uh, LA, um, working on raising more money to finalize paying our musician who's gonna score it, Eric Lewis, who's phenomenal. 
Uh, and so the film is going to be screened October 2021. All right. Uh, a film that started um, in 1997. It needed to percolate for a while. It needed to percolate for a while. It needed to go through a couple of filters. And it's funny because it's like timing is essentially everything when it comes to these types of moments. And the larger discussion around African-American foodways, around Black farming, around the Black hands in American cuisine. It's such a large conversation right now. And it was just like, in 1997, 2003, like all of those moments were definitely pushing, pushing it to this point, but it was like, their ears aren't open for it yet. Right. It this wasn't way. ready. It wasn't, it wasn't ready. It wasn't people time. Were not, people remember. were not receptive for it. And I think this is that moment. Not at all. They didn't understand the missing pieces of this farming narrative. Yeah. Um, and now eyes are wide open in that black farmers have a particular agrarian story that's part of an American exactly. uh, landscape, an American agricultural landscape, an American economic development landscape. And no one, it's our story to tell, first of yeah. all, but we didn't see a lot of examples. I love Charlene uh, Gilbert did the story Homecoming. Mm -hmm. I actually used her film uh, when I taught my class on black farmers at Denison University uh, back in the late, uh, late 90s. But um, there's not a lot. It's no. a very small footprint. So rhythms, you know, will be, and it's interesting, I actually use a lot of um, Jessica Harris's work, High on the Hog. I love that book oh, uh, around the, the culinary history and the, and, and the food ways. And so even, even her wonderful book still didn't have the kind of acclaim when it came out that exactly it has, that it has now so you're right timing timing is everything yeah it's uh almost not quite 10 years but it, it was it is the right time, time it is it really year. is and you can feel it like there's these there there's a there's a moment right now like a real when people people want this shift to happen very quickly and i'm like but shifts always happen in the spirit in the spiritual plane first and you know it you have to be in right relationship with people before things can progress as well. And I think what's happening now is spiritually people have to get into like right relationships with, um, with black folks and black bodies and all of the atrocities and things visited on black people and um, enslaved people coming here into this country. And so I think people are, you know, you have to get that course corrected before you get permission to keep moving forward. And so, you know, for me, like I keep telling most of the black folks I know, this is a time to sit back and just be receptive to the universe being really generous right now, because there's some reparations spiritually that are happening and then they'll physically start to show up. And I think you're yeah. seeing a lot of that right now. You're starting to see kind of these, the, the physical reparations starting to catch up with the spiritual ones. Mm -hmm. It's just, oh, tell us your stories. What do we need to know? I mean, this, I, you know, just watching everyone grapple with the American history that people have been taught and now pushing back and going, no, you need to have critical race theory as part of public education. You need kids to know, you know, to look at the 1619 project and understand exactly what happened in this country and why this country operates in the way it does now. Because if you want restorative justice, you have to understand why the injustice exists in the first place. And so just to see that happening across 
all disciplines and industries and spaces is like tremendous because it, you know, I think a lot of people probably feel overwhelmed because it's showing up in every place all at the same time. Yes, but it is. It's, it's because it's like the time is now. If you don't do it now, yes. Yes. I don't know what that's going to look like for y'all because, right. you know, right. I mean, once, once you get somebody, somebody like brother Stevie Wonder moving back to Africa, it's like, oh, what's that a signal of? Is that like, right. oh man, yeah. <laughs> People yeah. are returning home. They're literally going home. Yeah. So what you want you is know, to be- In a lot of ways, um, our community is waking up and going back to the land. I remember yeah. so many times throughout the course of the first 20 years, just telling people, you know, it's like, well, so what do you do? I, I work with black farmers. They go, these are, this is black people responding. They're black farmers? Yes, that's black. all we were y'all that's all we were yes. like we were brought here to cultivate the land and grow food for sale and for life and like that's what we did we raised yes. cattle we tended land that's that's where we came from and you know mm -hmm. even in the great migration guess what the first things that happened were we set up a way to grow food that's when you right. look at things like seneca hill and um spaces in jacksonville and tulsa and all those places had farming uh -huh. to lean on as far as food supply because we were where could you get food otherwise after yeah. emancipation that's right you had to grow it yourself still so it's like we come from the land that's right i remember i was in mound bayou mississippi which is an all-black town one of the earliest all-black towns and it's still there uh still pretty much all black and i was talking to one of the farmers and they said you know mound bayou we used to have a grocery store in the field Anything you wanted, we just went into the field and got it. Yeah. Um, it accounted for all these long livers, long life spans. Yep. I interviewed quite a few people in their 90s, um, hundreds, still walking without a cane, still yep. um, having all their teeth because they were close to land. They were feeding themselves. They were eating the things that they were growing. Yeah. And because of the way that they did grow, regenerative, yep. uh, more or less natural. Now we call it organic, organic but that's but, a marketing label. Yeah. But they did it in a holistic way where they didn't put chemicals in the soil and they replenished the soil every year. That was the intention of many of the farmers that I interviewed. They wanted to make sure that the soil was healthy. Yeah. It was something about that soil relationship that they you know, crop rotate and cover crops those people have, you know, the farmers have relationships to the land and relationship to their environment, the local east ecosystem, yeah. making sure they keep a forest so they could forage uh, or hunt yeah. or prey. As we know, during the enslavement period, it was the Black folks that went into the woods that prayed all night. Yeah. They would oh, go yeah. and pray and scream and sing and shout. And then they would go without sleep go back into those cabins and work all day. There were these alternative territorial systems that uh, the slavers couldn't reach because they were just too dangerous. They thought, ooh, I'm gonna get their snakes. Uh, I can't get through there. Mm. And so the many black people on these plantations had their own way to go from plantation to plantation at night. Uh, you know, I've, I've read about mothers walking miles just to cuddle their babies at night to walk back 
after figuring out where they had been sold to. And so we were able to have a spiritual, even within the enslavement and the oppressive conditions, the woods, the land was the refuge. And so you still see that today, especially in a lot of Gullah Geechee communities. They have the praise house um, in the woods, a church in the woods, a little small building in the woods. And that, that was more than a church. It was the, the city hall, if you will. It was where the elders all sat and they met. And if there was a community conflict, it would be settled right then. Yeah. And then they would leave the little, you know, the praise house and they would go into the woods which were surrounding the praise house and shout and pray. Um, and so we are very, very connected. We're land-based people, not a lot of meat eating tradition unless it's fish. Yeah. Uh, even with all the cattle, uh, Africans don't eat a lot of meat. Yeah, we and we're because we're very coastal people as well. We're very coastal. Yes. yes um. Yes. You know, if you think about where before the slave trade kicked off, where we spent so much of our time, specifically on that west coast of the continent, um, you know, we're just very coastal people. The Nile. We've always spent time just near a body of water, understanding mm -hmm. the relationship between that body of water, the land, and ourselves. So there was always just this really beautiful like symmetry between those three elements that we understood yes. like how to do those. And there's a few, there's a few documentaries that popped up in the last couple of years that I've watched where they talk about the migration pattern of, um, of the people in Africa from where the, everywhere from where the pyramids were and then the pyramid builders migrating to the West coast and then how the descendants um, of those people were primarily those that ended up enslaved because there was an understanding of how to cultivate land. They had an understanding of math and language and just all of those things. And to think that our ancestors reached back that far where they were, you know, where their hands were on the pyramids, where they, they were the ones building and designing those things. And to know like the first universities in the world were built in Africa and that we were charting stars and charting water and and we were able to, we, we were the, some of the first to travel to the North American continent and back because we understood how to chart water and how to build boats and how to get ourselves from place to place, but to have all that history lost and, you know, to, for people not to understand that the first people of the world already knew how to do all of these things and all that history gets burnt down and all that history gets thrown out, you know, in the middle, during colonization and imperialization. And it's just like, oh yeah, we've, we've always it's always been a part of who we are. We, we know yeah. how to do these things. This is why you couldn't grow. You could, you could start a rice crop in North America, but we, you couldn't figure out how to cultivate it and make it profitable until you enslaved the people who knew how to do it and oh. brought them here. That's all of those, those, um, all those hands and all of those places that people just don't understand that kind of, that all are centered around understanding the, the black experience and how it connects to the land in North yes. America. And like, once you understand that, and once you know the, the keepers and the stewards of those lands and how far back that goes, you have a better understanding of who you are and how you relate to the land and what you can get from it if you connect to it. Um, mm -hmm. I just, I'm excited to see people, especially our people, like let that light bulb coming on for folks. Like no one's asking you to become a farmer. It's just <laughs> understand like your connection to the actual right. planet and, and to the earth and that you can land. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. women's role. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, the first universities, you know, the first library is Timbuktu. 
Yep. Um, oh, wow. Which was maintained and designed by a woman. Buck two, Tim. Um, if it would not be, had been for that woman who made sure that we had, you know, materials, books preserved, you know, that's some of the very earliest knowledge. Rome, it, all of them stopped. Yeah. It, it was, Timbuktu was first. And so, you know, one of the things as well is that I'm, I'm learning as I interview my farmer, the farmers, the importance, the important role of women as uh, bearers of the knowledge, as keepers of the knowledge, keepers of the traditions, keepers of the seeds, the family, um, the medicines, you know, and they were all together. Everybody had a really specific role. Nobody was thrown away. Nobody was superfluous. Exactly. Everybody had a specific role that they, they played within the farm community. And, um, you I know, love this idea of women being the keepers of the of the seed, like physically uh -huh. and metaphysically and spiritually, like, you know, keepers. Because, you know, I told black women have long memories. <laughs> Sometimes, which can be, can be hard because we can remember tragedy for a long time, but we also remember the other things for mm -hmm. a very long time. I'm like, so black women have a long, have a long memory. Yeah. And, and photographic that, memory. You, oh you see that too. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know, a black woman could read a map. She could see something one time because of necessity. She may not have understood the, um, the, the you know, that those words together read this, but she could see it one time. Yeah know what that document those were the out of necessities and it exactly. was also a skill that we practiced but yeah black women have the you know there's a lot of evidence of photographic memory oh absolutely I, th I think about um like harriet tubman and while there are you know people think about the macro work that she did and i think about those like micro skills like remembering like having keeping a map in her head of where she has been where she needed to go, who was where, which houses were located where, which safe havens and safe houses were in which locations. And like to keep, you, you, she's literally keeping a running map of the entire Southeast and Eastern side of this country in her head. Yeah. To get yeah. people where they needed to go safely. And I'm like that for like, that's, you know, this is before GPS and before like handwritten maps uh -huh. and it's not like she could get her hands on those either. And yeah. the fact that she had to hide them in her memory, because if there was physical evidence of them anywhere uh -huh. that, you know, that would cost somebody a life. And then to create, um, uh, what's the word, um, encrypted messages before there were computers and, um, uh -huh. and, and, you know, internet security and all of those and like data that's security. Right. Like she had this amount, she knew who was going and what people looked like and where she needed to pick them up and to have an, uh, an entire network of people that she was keeping track of that were helping her. Like people just kind of discount the computer yeah. that was in her head to manage that. Because think about, I sort of think about what that would look like right now and how many bodies would be hired and paid for in order to get that to work now like what your it department would look like what the gps and mapping department would look like if there was an application team that was reviewing applications and people trying to get free like all of those people would have she'd have a whole company running under her to keep this right. underground railroad operational mm -hmm. and this was all there mm -hmm. and she and, was uh an astronaut she could read the stars i mean she followed okay. the dippers just, you know, um, she was, she was, in, that was a phenomenal woman. 
I just, you know, and for me, I tell people like black women have that, have that built in. It's, it's when it's activated that you start to see it. And it just mm-hmm. depends on who activates it and what activates it. And, um, cause like even, um, um, Winnie Mandela, like, I mean, Nelson Mandela spent most of his time in prison and she, she ran that whole, that whole yes, deal the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, she kept that yep. going. Um, for the bulk of the time he was in prison when he got out it was like kind of winding down because the fact that he got out was the signal that the work she had done while he was in was effective mm-hmm. and so for you know just all of those things and I'm just like y'all um, yeah if you want this to go black women need to have a very large voice in in whatever you're trying to do I just at this point like I'm excited to see that a lot of these a lot of films, a lot of content that are being created to capture history and to capture stories are being headed by women, by Black women specifically, because I think we are yep. excellent. Yep. A lot of the leaders of our organizing groups are Black women. Yeah. You, you know, um, actually, I've had two, two elderly gentlemen comment on that. <laughs> and they said, <laughs> well, wow, the women, they're, they're doing it. They really are. Um, yeah. And most recently, uh, someone said, he's like, have you noticed that all the organizers, the women are women? Yeah. And his question was, well, where are the men? <laughs> hey, we ask that question too sometimes. Uh, it's like, well, sometimes yeah. people don't take instructions. And that's part mm-hmm. of the reason why this gets challenging. Um, <laughs> you were talking about the premiering the, um, the film in October. Give me some details on that. Cause I would love, I mean, October is coming. Um, that and- is our projected date. We, okay. um, we released the material to the editors. Um, I think they got it in March. Okay. Maybe February. Uh, we're waiting for, so we have the individual interviews. So we're editing each individual interview. Uh, and so we're, we're expecting that the earliest will be October. Okay. But we'll also come out of this, Stephanie, is that even though we'll have a, uh, hopefully an hour to more uh, length of a documentary, these individual interviews, the full length of them that won't get into the documentary will have their own place. Mm. We're looking at a multimedia opportunity to share these either on a, a traveling exhibit through a bus uh, in some ways to archive them so that they can see these interviews of Miss Isaphine. When I interviewed her, she was 109. Ooh, wow. And wow. she tells the story of when she was young, her and her friend, her father, they had a farm and he had a peach tree. And he gave them a bucket of peaches one, one time. And they walked four miles, she and her friend, to sell those peaches. And Come they on now. Hat. <laughs> they walked back and brought him a hat and she just tickles and her stories <laughs> and my aunt Rose who was 98 at the uh, initial when I first started these interviews and then so I interviewed up until she was in her hundreds and she passed away at 103 she she tells this wonderful story she was um she had her own garden until she was 90 Wow. And the doctor was afraid that she would fall over and he kept telling her not to garden. And one of her nephews, while she was out of town, came in and took her garden out. She was so upset. And he asked him why. He said, because the doctor didn't want you to hurt yourself. So that was the last time they took a garden out. 
but she was still trying to fish in, in her diner. My <laughs> grandfather still fish crabs, all the things. Everything, yeah. He is going to be 93. Really? And he is still out here. I, I, the last time I saw him, he was in his little... Um, his little like covered patio in garden, moving his pots and plants yeah. and stuff. He he planted a garden when he retired and he was in his seventies at that point. He was like, I'm gonna plant this garden now. And I'm just like, do you, man? I mean, seriously, like my grandmother will be 90 in a week. And so she still, she's like, I'm so glad, I'm so glad I can still drive myself wherever I want to go. I'm like, don't, don't right. mess with these black people in their nineties. Right. They will outrun you every yeah, single time. Cool. You'll see that the people have been able to stay close to the land. Yes. In some capacity mm -hmm. are happier. They're healthier. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not a, a, you know, perfect, but there's a, the contentment that gets, I think, comes through being able to understand the most important piece of life to yeah. me is yeah. your family taking care of your health and your community and the land. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. You, they see their role as stewards of the land and that brings them joy. It's a very uh, purposeful life. It is. And it's a very important life. It's a spiritual life. And they know the power of the land. Many people yeah. who aren't farmers, I, I, you know, I, I, as a, I started gardening about eight years ago as a result of all these interviews and these farmers like I want to grow something yes and there's something that happens I don't know if you've ever grown anything Tiffany I have coming from a seed yeah they talk about spiritual and magical oh my grandmother fought, had a garden we grew up one block from each other when, in Daytona Beach and I would ride my bike to over her house and she had chickens and all kinds of greens and, and when I was a kid I didn't think nothing of it I thought oh that's nice you know all of her friends had gardens but what I did remember was when I left my street, we lived on the corner and I went to her street, Garden Street, about two houses down. One of her friends had a sugarcane patch. Mm. And I would get some sugarcane from there and I'd walk up a little bit more. If I wasn't on my bike, I'm walking. And even on my bike, I'd put it aside. Pretty soon up the street, another one of her friends had a peach, had plum tree. Mm. Then when I get to my grandma's house, you know, like I didn't collect it all this food. And so I, I took that for granted. I totally thought that everybody grew food. So when I wow. moved, my grandmother passed on and I moved out into the world, didn't see that. But when I started my garden and even recently during COVID, I had to dig, it was just, it was the frustration. I dug out the grass in a yard that I was staying brought in some soil and planted. I had to, I had to grow something. Me connecting to the soil in that way connected me to my grandmother because I was able to, almost when I touched the soil, I felt like I could touch her. There was a part of her, her memory, um, her essence that I experienced as being a part of the soil as connecting to the seeds. And so that that relationship, I think farmers, they get it. Yeah. They're out there on the tractors, they walk in the field, they're seeing the fence line, and um, they know something special. And and I think that is the most beautiful thing because they exude that. Oh, absolutely. And even in the ways in which they may struggle, because farming is hard work, as you know. Of course. Um, and they may not make money this crop, or they, you know, no money for paying the tractor or whatever, 
they will get up the next day like nothing happened and just keep start over yeah get on that tractor get on that mule or whatever and do it again who does that people it, who really love it they know there something. it is i was going to say the people who get up and do it again are the ones who understand the value who know what they they stand to gain yes. from doing it again and it's those who don't see it who are like well this is not going to result to any in anything and it's just like because you don't see it yet and they really do have like a third eye where they can see nope we go back and we do it again and it's funny because yeah. like I think about like both sides of my family at this point and where farming shows up on my family tree and like my grandmother's father um my dad's my dad's mother she he not only took care of his own little plot of land, but he actually would take care of and manage the neighboring farms in New Jersey. And I was I grew up in South Jersey. So that's nothing, almost all farm. And, you know, my dad, where he lives now, they live, I like I told you, he, he lives pretty much in the middle of nowhere. You can see wild turkeys, you can see wild llamas, all the things. And this is South wow. Jersey. So when people think New Jersey, most people are thinking, um, North Jersey, but right in that little space where, you know, New Jersey and New York kind of share a waterway. And I'm talking three or four hours south of that. And so like right outside of Philadelphia, and it's just nothing but farm. I mean, I grew up going to uh, like apple orchards for like school trips. Um, with and any amount of driving, you could drive for 20, 30 minutes. And next thing you know, you're hitting cornfields and blueberry patches and strawberry patches. And like New Jersey has some of the best produce in the country. And people don't really know that because, you know, most of those farmers sell in season and that's it. So, you know, New Jersey is surrounded by, um, you know, water access. And so everything's super lush and super green. We have a ton of dairy farms. And so I remember driving to my great grandmother's house and the smell, there was always this moment where the smell would change. And all of a sudden it was like, Ooh, okay, okay. We are hitting all of the dairy farms right now. And that was about yeah. 10 minutes from her house and the, her little tiny, tiny house. It was across the street from a farm, but it's like, so I grew up with that, you know, with that energy around, like a group across the street from a park. So it was like, I was always surrounded by like things that were growing. So new life, and kind of that cycle of life of letting the ground rest. Cause I remember going past certain fields at certain ages and stages of life where that field had nothing in it. And then the following year, you could see things starting to come back again. And so there's this, I mean, there's this really beautiful, I just never understood like how some of my family migrated to New Jersey, that part of New Jersey specifically and what they did when they got there. But now that I understand like they migrated to a place where they could continue to farm and mm -hmm. continue to be connected to the land. And did really well for themselves because of that. They were able to gain a certain level of like autonomy and independence because of the because of the fact that they could actually, you know, yeah. use their agrarian practices to create a life for themselves. And so, I do. I, I kind of I always connect. I right now I've my little tiny Harlem apartment. I got thirteen plants. And <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I'm like I always. I'm like we. I need more plants. I'm constantly like propagating new plants. Um, and it's just become a part. Like, I remember there was a point I was, I had to be eight or nine years old. Somehow I got this idea that I could grow like onions and some stuff in our front yard. Um, and so my mom kept a garden and I went out and threw my little seeds in the ground and was tending to it. And you could smell the onions growing and my mother could not figure out what was going on. She would get outside and be like, what is the smell? 
what is going on? And so eventually they started to sprout and my dad saw them and was like, what are these? And so when they dug them up, I was like, those are my onions. These are my pants. So yes, I have always been that kid who wanted to get her hands in the dirt. Um, you know, every time I move to a new city, I find the local farmer's market. Um, oh, you know, it's just like, cause there's always one there and I'm like, farmers yeah. need to be supported no matter how big or small right. where they are. And so that right. I make that my first order of business. Like well, as soon as I find a new, have a new address, I'm like, okay, show me where the local farmer's market is mm -hmm. because I, or the network of farmer's markets. Cause you know, a lot of times cities can't support the big ones. So they have these little tiny pop-ups all over the place on different days. And so I try to make it my business no matter where yeah. I live to find them. Cause that's, for me, that's the key of finding out what farming looks like in that area. Cause I lived in Arizona for 10 years and most people are like, people can grow things out there. I'm like, absolutely. Arizona has a million different little microclimates. And so you can grow a ton of stuff in Arizona yeah. and you wouldn't know it though. If you just go to the grocery store, you have to go to the farmer's markets there to know exactly what's growing locally and to try to, and I always try to like eat to the local and seasonal, um, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, part of my- That's, that's healthier. You know, it we're is. eating local soil microbes. Yep. We're eating the food that we need in the winter time uh, that's fortifying us with beta carotene. We're exactly. eating the food in the summer like watermelon and all the red stuff that we need for reproduction that's fortifying us in the summertime when you eat in season Yep. and you eat local. That's how these folks are living to be 190 exactly. years old. Come on, They're now. not eating food that, you know, my mom, I think I've got a watermelon somewhere. I had a taste for watermelon. It was during the winter. My mom, you know, grew up on, grew up on a farm, but she doesn't like it. It was a ten, They were tenant farmers, her, right. my grandmother's second husband. Um, and, and so I brought the watermelon in and she says, oh, that watermelon is not going to be sweet. I was like, I don't know. You know, it's Florida. You know, we're down in Florida. I was like, you don't eat watermelons in December. Not in December. That's not. I was like, oh, mom, it's lo and behold. She was like, I promise you it's not going to be what you think. You know, and those are certain things that they just knew, you know, like what you eat in the summertime, what you eat together. You know, it just promoted long life. It promoted the compatibility, you know, planting companion plants. And, you know, it, it, here's a thought too, that uh, when people get a seed or get a plant without the, the, the history of what you eat with it and why you eat it with it and when, you know, it's so out of context. People will order some seeds from somewhere and out. And I'll ask a question, I said, well, what do you know? Say, so you ordered some seeds from Korea. Do you know what they plant with that? particular I mean, lettuce what's next to that and why do they plant that and what do they eat with it you know one part of the lettuce it might be bitter and you need something to ease the enzymes and the digestive system over time the plants have evolved with us people have planted what works for the environment and work for their diet yeah so if you get a seed that is totally removed from the local context you, you know, it's just, it's a, it's ice, it's an isolated, almost experiment. Yeah. Unless you know what you got at the local environment and see what else is growing with that. Absolutely. I, and it's, you know, that idea of, and some people try to force certain crops as well. And I'm just like, that won't grow here. So stop trying to make it grow here. <laughs> I know. They're like, oh, I can't yeah. get that to come up. I'm like, because it doesn't want to. So like, cut that out. Um, and yet to that, like to even that seasonal, that seasonal conversation I have with most people, 
at some point. Um, and it could be absolute strangers in grocery stores at this point. And I'm just like, why are you buying these strawberries in October? Huh? Well, they grow them. Don't just because something grows doesn't mean it should be growing right now. First of all, second of all, it's for its aesthetics. Like those strawberries are going to be red only on the outside because they're not supposed to be doing anything right now. It's supposed to be dormant in October. So I don't know what you're doing. So you're going to buy these strawberries. You're going to get them home. You're going to bite into them. They're going to be terrible. Mm -hmm. Heart. They're going to be, they're not going to be tender. They're just going to be, you're, you're going to be mad that you bought these strawberries. And, yeah. and the second thing is, do you know how much money you paying for strawberries in October? Can you just wait till, yeah. till, till April and wait mm -hmm. until they're two ninety nine for a pint? Like, can you wait? So sweet. Just they're smaller, oh, so they're perfect. Vicious. And that's and I, the other I, thing that farmers understand. They know yeah. when you eat the food, when it's, when you, when it's time yep. to eat a certain food. Yeah. And when it's not. And there's just some. I just feel like some of these climate challenges we have could be could a lot of it could be solved with a conversation about what to eat and when to eat and how to grow it. And mm -hmm. just, you know, because we know that that the much commercial farming that happens and commercial food production that happens in this country, it just has degraded the land so much that mm -hmm. of course of course if you put a ton of cows together and there's all this methane gas and you can't offset it with healthy crops growing that can pull that co2 out of the air and put and, re and reproduce oxygen and like if you look at the balance and how these farms are built out you have an overabundance of one thing and nothing else on the other side to bounce to counterbalance it yeah you can grow these animals Mm -hmm. for food if you're also growing crops around them and Alongside creating of, yeah. spaces around them that's to a, offset that yeah that's a beauty of also being on a black farm it's a closed loop system in mm -hmm. that everything uh is going back to the farm yeah uh, it's composted um you don't have a thousand head of cattle you know you have enough so that you can get rid of that manure they can graze they can provide milk Yep. and other kinds of materials, but you you are you using an integrated system. Yep, and everything goes back into that loop. Exactly, closed loop. Except the bigger farm, you can't close the loop because you got to do like you you know get rid of that waste. Yep, um, the soil's not healthy, the community's not healthy, and that horrible stench of all the methane gas and all that urine in the in and all the other waste. Within that, that do anything with. It's not healthy for anything in the environment to breathe. No, no. And I just, yeah. So I mean, a lot of conversations need to be had around like how we grow and produce food and, and what that means. Not to yeah. mention. I mean, and that's me. I'm like, out of everything else, just the way you treat a living being, even if you're growing it. I mean, because for me, I feel like there is a symbiotic relationship between animals and humans that are necessary. Like husbandry is necessary mm -hmm. to keep animals healthy as well. Like animals should, uh, should why are they going to, they're not going to live to be 90 years old. Like that cow's not going to live to be 90. You, they live, they produce new life and they, they know like there's a job to do in, in our ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And so, you know, like if other, you know, if other carnivores in the world do the same thing, but they don't overeat, you know, lions don't overeat, predators don't overeat, you know, no. they know when it's time, they eat right. what they need to eat and then they move on. And so if, if human beings had that same understanding of there's a time and place for this, but there is a time and place for this, like there's, you know, letting, well, we just let them all live. Okay. And then what? 
Like, explain to me how this works. I'm like, so yes, the overproduction of anything mm-hmm. is out of balance and terrible. So yes, you're going to automatically start to mistreat animals when you have right. too many of them. But when, if you can pull back and learn how to farm and produce food in balance, then you don't have these conversations that get, you know, contentious around, you know, stop eating meat. And you're just like, okay, um, let's have another conversation yeah. about like balanced farming and how mm-hmm. this actually works and how taking care of animals is supposed to work and opposed to what we're doing right now. And then we can, then we can like find a healthy place to meet. And so if right. you decide that I'm not going to eat meat because of that, or anyway, then that's your personal preference but it's like understanding that if we were doing things in balance the way we were supposed to a lot of these conversations would yeah. need to be had so yeah. um mass, mass farming yeah. uh you know the big various industries push all of this on us you know um factory farming yeah all the ways in which we just continue to oppress uh living things uh the animals that uh they're making all the profits, they're yep. doing all the lobbying, they're making sure that what they want gets forwarded. Yeah. For the small producers, those are more environmentally conscious like us. We don't have a lot of lobbyists up there trying, we don't have our industry. It, we're nope. growing, as you exactly. can you'll see more people are becoming vegan, uh, more people are turning away from meat. You got all these plants, I don't, I, I, I taste some of it, you know, these plant-based meat yeah. substitutes. Um, and so I think there is a growing interest, but yeah. also we, you know, we might make a little dent, but the industries are so powerful. Exactly, the exactly. The, the, the pork is just so powerful and they don't give a happy hoot about contaminating the whole Mississippi River if it's gonna mean they can sell more cows. Yeah. You know, because there's a justification, they create jobs, this and this and that. Um, But I think the more of us uh, that are conscious and conscientious around the environment and our bodies, we can hold those industries more accountable. Exactly. Possibly begin to find them for all this contamination and and pollution. Yeah. um, But there's a big battle, you know, factory farming. (laughs) It's huge. It's huge. Oh, they get all the subsidies, these 10,000 acre farmers, they got it good. They do. They really do. And it, it's like, and a lot of that production is not even for consumption by human beings. A lot of it is for right. like plastic production and other things. And you're just like, oh. and mm-hmm. just the amount of waste, I mean, just the utter amount of waste. Okay, well, let's sell these chicken breasts, but don't sell another, no other parts <laughs> of this animal. And you're like, nah, man, yeah. like the whole point is to use the whole thing, grow it humanely and kindly as part of the system let it contribute to other things and other living organisms and then at the end of its life use all of it as in out of respect and so just that i just even that idea for me is is definitely more ethical than you know there are there are some decent plant-based products but the majority of them the amount of stuff going into them i just it troubles me (laughs) Like the past ingredient number three or four, we're getting into a whole paragraph of things that are just, I don't know if you need them in your body. Um, Yeah, there's just a a return to understanding the land and how our participation and what nature Uh does and what nature needs us to do Uh will create, I think will create the conditions that people are looking for. And, And you're right, this idea of like, 
big big agro big business in general with what it has done so brilliantly is place the burden on the consumer to fix all the things that they break and mm-hmm. so it's created these very contentious spaces of discussion with people with them not understanding that for the billions of dollars that this corporation has made they're asking you with your little bit of money to fix huge problems that they've created. Well, if you guys didn't waste so much, I'm like the amount of waste the individual generates pales in comparison to the waste generated by a large corporation. And yet they they have shouldered us with the responsibility of fixing it. And I'm just like, so this is the, this for me, I'm like, that's the scam Uh at this point. That, that is, is the scam. Point. That is the scam. Yeah. So you wake up stressed out about things that you stress, you're, you wake up stressed out about problems that weren't yours to begin with. Thinking about how can we reduce plastic waste? Well, most plastic waste comes from manufacturing, not from purchasing. So this I, this misconception that, well, all this plastic waste is from us buying things. Mm-mm. No, Mm-mm. it's them creating the things that we aren't buying, that aren't being sold, that get thrown out or sent someplace else or sent on a barge or what, whatever's happening to it. I'm like, so the, the, the imbalance of that reporting for me is like where we have to go. Oh, okay. So that wasn't a problem we created. That's right. I That's don't, right. they're shouldering you with the responsibility though. Cause as long as they can divert the attention back to you and it's like, look at you buying, you know, regular two ply toilet paper, you should be buying bamboo toilet paper instead because that's the reason why we have this pollution problem. It's just like the production of toilet paper creates more waste than the actual use mm-hmm. of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. So just like, you know, having very real conversations and understanding yeah. how things should work and opposed to how things are working. It's just such a huge part of that. And I think talking about black farming and black farmers and the history of black farmers and black cowboys and all type of ranch hands and everything else and our direct influence on agriculture in the United States can open a lot of eyes to why it looks the way it does now. Right. Had you that's, go ahead. that's one of the reasons it's also to, uh, so important to keep black farmers on the land. Yeah. You know, agricultural uh, endeavors are one of the biggest polluters. But one, one of the things that black farmers are conscious of is their role as stewards. Exactly. They're very accountability. They're very accountable to their community. They're very accountable to the land, to their, their, their love of God, the spirit that they see, the connection between land and spirit. Exactly. And so if you've got to have some folks that grow food, why not have the men and women who are excellent stewards that believe that they are responsible for it? Exactly. There is a price that you pay if you don't take certain, um, you know, conservative, you know, uh, regenerative practices. That's what I, another thing, what I love about black farmers is they're so conscientious about their local environment, their ecosystem. They really are. They, they know really their are. role. Yeah. And so that's why if we had kept those millions of black farmers that were, their land was taken, those millions of acres that was taken, we would probably have a better sequestration of carbon. Oh my We'd gosh. probably have more rural environments, more, yeah. um, more healthier uh, food corridors that aren't polluted, probably fewer golf courses as well. Absolutely. That, that Absolutely. is so important that you keep those folks on the land that, and then, and, and black farmers traditionally are smaller farmers. Yeah. So they're able to really participate in that closed loop system. 
um, and take everything back to the farm where they don't have 500,000, 2,000, 5,000 acres. Some of them do. But when you're a small farmer, you know, you figure out how to make every, how to use everything. Mm -hmm. There is yeah. no waste. Yeah. Everything. These farmers were taking the, the, the peels from potatoes, um, taking the eggshells and feeding them. Everything went back to the farm. Everything went back to the farm, either to the farm animals, to the soil, you know, in a way that regenerated and replenished. It was nothing that, you know, and, and this composting has been uh, present and prevalent, uh, has been uh, evident. There's the Kingsbury Plantation in Virginia when the, some archaeologists began to excavate and they found this pit and in this pit, they realized was a compost bin. So they had dug several feet in the ground and covered it with a top. Wow. But they had everything in there. They put bones and everything. And that's right. how those farms were composted. So we know hundreds of years ago, black farmers, black growers have been composting, have been doing the most yeah. to make sure they can take care of the soil and haven't been wasting a thing. Nothing went to the trash can. You know, first of all, it was out of necessity. <laughs> but, the other, but the other part was out of just a worldview. Yeah. You know? And if we learn how to not waste anything, I, you know, I, I see it when I'm around elders. I have a friend of mine um, who's an elder and we were both working on our PhD and she came to visit me in Atlanta one time. And, I, you know, we both look at, I got the stuff in the refrigerator. I look in the refrigerator. I go, oh, I don't see anything. She looks in the refrigerator. We have a feast. Before oh, you know it, we got like items <laughs> from was, leftover stuff she saw in the refrigerator that I didn't see. That you didn't see. I mean, I mean we had, oh man, she, we, oh my God, it was like, and it tasted so good. Yep. Right? Yeah. People, they, you know, I just learned from my grandmother and all the elders is like, they didn't waste anything. Mm -hmm. They knew how to make a big old pot of soup out of one or two things. Oh. You know, my grandmother you might, used to my my grandmother used to call it stuff majig, um, and it was like call it? she called it stuff majig, stuff majig, <laughs> and it was like don't ask her what it was, don't ask her what was in there. It, it was, was like it was a combination of little dribs and drabs of everything. It was always delicious. And it was good. And it was good. They know how to season it, and nope. <laughs> and we had leftovers. Leftovers. <laughs> Had the nerve to have leftovers. Went in there. You see, you went in there and was like, I don't know. There ain't much in here. And well, then they had that. the nerve. Put this on this. Yep. And then we're going to put that on that. And, and and so when we sit down, I go, you saw all of this in all there. All of this in there. All of this was in there. I learned. I learned myself, you know. It, we just need. And, you know, the other thing about it's, it's wonderful that you have your grandmother and your grandfather. It's so important that we have that connection with our elders. That's yeah. one of the things that I'm so excited about this film, why it was so key to me. Yeah. To interview the eldest farmers that I could find because I see them and their role is reaching back and connecting with the young people. Yeah. You know, the greats that are eight years old to 18 to 28, those generational connections oh. um, helps us identify with who we are. Yeah. Right. That 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 great aunt is me, you know, what she does and she reaches back. And so just like, you know, when I put my hands in the ground and I can connect to my grandmother, you know, mm. we see our great aunts and our grandfathers out there in the field. And we know that 
gosh, that's my blood. That's my DNA. Yeah. I know how to do that. And there is this, I think there's something totally within the DNA, but the very first time that I did open my, you know, put in my own garden, there were some things. I hadn't taken a garden class. I mean, I was out in the field with the farmers. I saw a little bit, but I was able to, you know, put in my garden. And I had another friend of mine who's also an elder. I, I have a lot of friends who are older than me who are gardeners. The good ones but, are. The good ones are. The ones worth something is and, definitely older yes. ones. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she came, Mia, and she said, oh, look at that. How'd you know how to do that? I says, I don't know. So I must have been channeling my grandmother. Yeah. So when you, when you got that in you, that essence, we're not too far away from it. We may be, at the most, the average Black American, maybe two generations right. away from the land. Because many of us were still on the farm in the 50s and 60s, right? Yep. yep. Um, or, or knew of a relative that was still, like, you that you visited frequently. Uh, yeah. I know, like, yeah, my parents... Farm they to go back to exactly. in the summers. My sisters went in the summers. I always had a job. Or I was like, I can't go. I was working at 12. I'm like, I'm yep. not. You stink out there. Exactly. Um, but now I wish that I had stayed and spent the summers on that farm. I really mm. do. I know I missed it. But what I know I did when I went to film Rhythms, I found more of my family's farm story. Nice. So, it, you yes. know, I, I guess I'm trying to retrieve some of what I, what I, <laughs> what I missed. Right. But I feel good that um, what I learned over the six weeks of touring uh, in the summer of 2012 was good. It was yeah. good. Yeah. Now, for um, before before this goes into hour two, um, what can we what how can we support you right now? Support the film um, since we know like October still is well, a bit of a way off. Well, there's a couple things that you can do. Um, certainly, we still have a bit of a fundraiser on GoFundMe. Okay. So if you're so inclined to go to uh, the GoFundMe Rhythms of the Land. Um, but I would also suggest that supporting me, supporting my work is really about supporting a Black farmer. If you're in a community um, and you see Black farmers at a farmer's market or any opportunity that you can, even if they're, um, you know, women who, are, who sell flowers, because that's what a lot of Black women did, even before... Um, I think you, you may have seen this. Um, there's a woman that wrote the book. Oh gosh, uh, Abra Lee. It's it's coming out next year, and she it's about horticulture. And she did a presentation for our Ear to the Ground series, where she talked about Black women and horticulture and how we grew flowers, how we were the mm -hmm. earliest flower vendors um, in Washington. Mm. And so you know, if you see a black vendor or a black farmer, support that black farmer. Cause that's, that's a really, our work at Farms to Grow, I think my whole body of work as an individual on this planet today is really about making sure that we can hug and embrace and take care of our black farmers. Yeah. They have been just disenfranchised, dogged out, kicked to the curve, disrespected, no dignity. And if we're mm. able to turn the tide Give them a sense of respect. Give them a sense of dignity and a sense of, you know, support. When Rhythms of the Land comes out to theaters, you'll, you, you know, it'll be another reason to support, but it'll be the continuum of realizing that there's a, such an important role to support Black farmers and, and, and everybody, you know, every demographic. The Black farming story is America's story. Period. It is a story that is hardly told 
but I will tell you that America would not be where it is if it were not for the black hands. Done. I mean, period. So when we start talking about when we open that can of worms and we are automatically respecting and recognizing the role that black farmers have played. And so we, you know, I would just ask that people continue to support black farmers. Um, I'd like to send you uh, an announcement. Farms to Grow is providing technical assistance to um, black farmers under the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan. So uh, if you're interested in applying for, there's three grant opportunities, the farmer's market promotion, local market promotion, and regional food systems partnership. Uh, Farms to Grow will help TA you and help you um, apply for those funds. So okay. we gotta get black, our, our, our work is with black farmers. We gotta get more black farmers, getting more greater market share, getting into institutions. Yeah. Um, Oftentimes, you know, you, you see this, we got a hairdresser, we got a mechanic. We ought to have a black farmer. We ought to have a farmer that we can pick up and call, knowing watermelon season, knowing strawberry season, knowing, you know, the crowder peas are coming up. Yeah. Um, be there, expecting yeah. to support. And that, you know, that's certainly what I would suggest. Um, yeah, just keep All supporting right. black farmers. Well, thank you. I mean, this was... I'm always blown away and humbled when I interview people because I'm just like, I apparently am not doing enough. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I am. It's like, I don't feel like I'm doing enough at this point. <laughs> should be doing more. Um, but thank you so much for it's been just- a pleasure, Tiffany. I just, I, I appreciate to, you. Um, you know, sharing some of the footage with the, from the film. Please. At some point, I'd love to come back if you'll have me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on, and you, does the, um, does the film have its own website with like, you yes, know, where we can get updates? www.rhythmsoftheland.com. Okay. And that'll go on the, the Afros and Ives website as well, because I will be keeping an eye. Um, you know, it's October. So it, you know what's wild? My brother is supposed to be getting, is, well, I don't want to say supposed, that's going to be disrespectful. My brother's getting married. He's planning on getting married in October. So, and I lived in, he's still in Arizona. So I can def, I'm that, you know, if those times work out, I would love to be there in person for that premiere for sure. Cause I will be on that side of the country anyway. Okay. Um, okay. So I will be in touch about doing all of that, but I just, I'm look, I look forward to like, and we're going to tour just like the film. When I was in the Southern States, we're going to tour the Southern States. We're going to okay. go back to the locations where the farmers are still alive and share it within their community centers and their churches so that they can be honored in their hometowns as uh representative of the black farming story oh, so we'll be, be we may be in a neighborhood near you all right all right then well then we will keep an eye out for that i'll make sure people get over to the at least to the website get to the gofundme to make yes. sure we can push this thing across the finish line and that you know we can you know push hard enough to get some actual like get some some distribution some nationwide distribution happening because yes. i think yes. is and we thing. actually um with regard to fundraiser if, there, if you know you got viewers that can just write a check for 5,000. We still are about 15,000 away from uh, what we need to shore up Eric Lewis uh, for the score. Okay. And so right. we're still raising money for the music. All right. Well, that, that y'all, y'all know what to do then. Y'all know what to do. Let me hit the